Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The judge even told us in the pre-trial conference, this is a very conservative venue. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask for $200 million or something like that in the closing. Does that strike you as crazy? She's like, you should ask for more. Please rise. Court is now in session. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm not sure what day it is of the uh, of the lockdown shelter in place, but uh, it's been going on for a while now. I don't even. I'm not even sure what day of the week it is. Um, I know, but I I actually woke up in a really terrible mood to the extent you could say I woke up because I barely slept last night, but. Um, I, so I was in a terrible mood all morning and then I started preparing for this episode of the podcast and it, this is a case that really puts things in perspective for you. That's for sure. It's definitely one that no matter what's going on in your life is nothing compared to what's happened in, to the family in this case. Um, well, let me go ahead and introduce our, uh, our three guests today. Uh, we've got three great lawyers, all from the Atlanta area and, and uh, uh, friends of, uh, of our firm. We've uh, known them over the years and worked with them on various cases. But I want to go ahead and introduce uh, Brian Buck Rogers. I've never called him Brian before. I've always <laughs> called him Buck. Uh, Buck Rogers, Darren Somerville, and Anna Cross. Welcome, guys. Thanks so hey much. Appreciate you having us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and uh, and just so I can make sure to tell everybody uh, who they're listening to and how they can find you, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you one by one. We'll start with Buck. Buck is a partner at Rogers and Fight LLC, and you can look him up at Rogers Fight, F-I-T-E dot com. And uh, and Buck, I was looking over your uh, your your resume and it's impressive. Uh, Buck is a not only does he have his commercial driver's license, so he can he can drive a truck if he needs to. Uh, he's uh, a certified guest lecturer by the uh, Post, the Peace Officer Standards and Training. Uh, he was the president of the Georgia State Bar in 2017-2018. He was the president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers. Uh, he is, uh, uh, this is a few years ago, but he was named as one of the 14 under 40 to watch by the Fulton County Daily Report. He's been named as one of the best lawyers in Georgia, one of the top 100 super lawyers, and he has uh, graduated from the National College of Advocates, the Ultimate Trial College, and Trial Lawyers College. And he is a teacher at the Trial Skills Clinic at the University of Georgia, and uh, went to undergrad at UGA, and then went to law school at Vanderbilt. So, uh, so welcome, Buck. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> and we and we should. I think I think Raz will be able to clean all this up. Buck is on a little bit of a delay because he's out in the country. And uh, and I think you said before you're using the Wi-Fi out of your truck. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so uh, well, uh, very good. And then uh, and then let me introduce Darren Somerville and Anna Cross. Darren and Anna are both with the Somerville firm out of Atlanta, Georgia. Darren is a partner at the Somerville firm and. Uh, you can look them up at somervillefirm.com. That's S-U-M-M-E-R-V-I-L-L-E firm.com. And so, Darren, I saw that you uh, excelled in debate both in uh, high school and college uh, and were named as one of the top debaters in the country. 
1990 and 1991. And that's, uh, that's impressive. Um, and then while you're at Georgia State uh, Law School, won every major uh, writing award, uh, and you have been uh, heavily involved in all types of litigation, especially commercial litigation and, and appellate practice, uh, have worked on a number of cases uh, through the appeals process and have been in front of both the uh, Georgia Court of Appeals and Georgia Supreme Court uh, multiple times and uh, and have been recognized as one of the top 100 trial lawyers in Georgia and one of the top 100 super lawyers uh, in Georgia. And uh, and I should say went to Emory for undergrad and then uh, Georgia State for law school. So uh, so welcome, Darren. Thanks for having us, Steve and Yvonne. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then Anna, uh, Anna, sorry, last but not least, uh, Anna Cross is uh, is with the Somerville firm. And Anna spent, I think, the first 20 years of your career as a prosecutor in the metro Atlanta area. And I saw um, some of the cases that you worked on uh, were state versus, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, Hemi Newman, which was the uh, 2010 Dunwoody daycare murder case. Uh, and you worked on the case involving uh, H. Rap Brown, which was the murder of a Fulton County Sheriff's deputy back in 2000, and have been part of uh, multiple trial teams uh, and and uh, on um, felonies and murders, and then also taken uh, hundreds of cases to the Georgia Court of Appeals and the Georgia Supreme Court, and uh, and. Uh, went to Notre Dame uh, for undergrad and with a minor in Japanese, I noticed. So Yvonne's going to test you on that later. And, Excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and then a graduate of the uh, Emory, Emory University School of Law. So welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having us. Well, um, well, let's go ahead, guys, and, and get into talking about this case. This was a um, there's no other way to say it. It's just a uh, extremely uh, tragic case. And I, and I want to give you time to tell us about uh, the family that you represented because they just seem like, uh, um, uh, such a, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's a tragic story, but just a tremendous family. Um, I, you know, just to uh, see some of the pictures that were here, uh, just, uh, a beautiful, uh, uh, loving family from, from Florida that was up in Blue Ridge, Georgia, uh, for the 4th of July. Uh, and we're on some vacation up in the mountains. Uh, and on July 1st, 2011, had been out watching some um, a fireworks display. And, uh, and then basically we're driving home in their Honda Odyssey. And uh, they were stopped at a stoplight. Uh, didn't know it, but there was a, a fellow by the name of Jake Lee. He was 16 years old, had just gotten a 2011 Dodge Ram 1500. Uh, and had been, I think, both drinking alcohol and uh, huffing uh, aerosol propellants. I, I think what I saw that he was huffing was the stuff you used to dust your keyboards with. Um, and uh, if if I saw the facts right, he before this collision, he had uh, run off the road and hit a guardrail and continued going. Uh, ran a red light at some point in the process had even driven past a, uh, a police vehicle. Uh, but, but basically just, uh, drove right into the back of the, uh, Johnson's, uh, Honda Odyssey going approximately 78 miles per hour, did not hit the brakes. And, um, uh, I'm going to go through the list of injuries. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to miss some, but they were just catastrophic injuries. So, uh, David and Susie uh, were the parents, and they were sitting in the front. Uh, David was driving. He suffered a concussion. 
Susie uh, was pregnant and she suffered uh, broken ribs and some internal uh, bleeding. Um, the 10-year-old Brooke was sitting, I, I guess, in the next row. Uh, and her sister Catherine uh, were there. Uh, uh, let's see, Brooke, uh, Brooke had multiple leg fractures and other fractures. And then Catherine broke both of her legs, fractures to her pelvis, lacerated her liver, and I think was in a coma for a while. And then... Um, in the very back uh, was six-year-old Hannah, uh, and Hannah was was killed as a result of the collision. Uh, and then her three-year-old brother Owen, who I think was in a car seat, uh, was catastrophically injured, and um, it was a very high quadriplegic, uh, ventilator-dependent. And uh, I, I thought I saw he even had a, a pacemaker uh, implanted, um, and but but survived. Um, but just uh, horrific injuries, um, and uh, and I should say the name of the case is uh, Johnson or the, the Johnson family versus Jacob Robert Lee. Uh, this was tried back in September of 2018 in Fanning County, Georgia, uh, a very small county up in the mountains. Uh, and the total verdict, I'll, I'll, I'll run through, for the wrongful death of Hannah Johnson was $45 million total. Uh, for Owen, the three-year-old who was uh, a quadriplegic, was a total of seventy-five million. Uh, for Su- Susie, the uh, the mother, uh, a little bit over two and a half million dollars. For Brooke, um, who was the ten-year-old, uh, three point one million dollar verdict. And then for Catherine, um, who was the eight-year-old, a three point one five million dollar verdict for a total verdict of one hundred and twenty eight million eight hundred and thirteen thousand five hundred and twenty two dollars for the family. Um, so, uh, first of all, guys, let me just ask you, did I get the facts basically correct? Yes, that was a good rundown. OK, <laughs> uh, I, I, I wanted to give you a chance just because I, I read some of the information about the case and, and what you said. But just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about this family and uh and and what what they were like buck you should go first all right i've got a little delay on my end um it, and Susanna uh are just great people and their faith was um you would think of job from the bible and and wonder how you can maintain your faith but he never did, and she didn't either. When I first met them, um, they were at the McDonald's house at the Erlanger facility up in Chattanooga. Um, and David's father was kind of playing point on screening lawyers to see who might represent the family. Um, obviously, they're in the midst of dealing with, you know, chronic acute, long-term, tragic, catastrophic-type injuries um, of their children. They buried Hannah. Um, You know, Susie's got every rib in a ribcage fractured while she's pregnant, trying to bury her daughter and sobbing in in both pain and and sorrow. Um, But they were just a great, great family to represent. and throughout this, they were steadfast. And a lot of people have asked us, you know, why we ended up trying this case. And we'll probably get into that a little later. But, um, you know, literally, I, 
like a week before our special set trial, we resolved the claim against the father and we had a pending claim against the mother uh, we're talking about of the defendants, obviously, with regard to a, a divorce, which we didn't think was legitimate, and uh, a bankruptcy filing, which was interesting. And so we got that resolved in trial, and we had a special setting. And the Johnsons wanted justice. They wanted this case tried. And a lot of families would have packed up, but at a principle, they wanted to see that community render its verdict. And to me, uh, that was one of the most telling you know, aspects of this family. Seven years after their loss, they had the resolve to see it to conclusion. And I would just add, um, I had the, this case is still difficult for me to talk about. Um, but I had the honor of doing the closing and I started by going behind David and Susie and explaining to the jury that they were the dream scenario I had in law school. Uh, these are people who needed someone to have a voice for them, uh, but they were as brave as anyone as I had ever seen uh, in the face of this community. That was the the case really drove a schism in in the community uh, between the families involved and the 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 Atlanta lawyers involved, as we were termed uh, in the paper at one point, but uh, I can't say enough. I, I wear a bracelet on my wrist that says, find your inspiration. I wore it uh, the day my son was born and have never taken it off. Uh, and I used it to describe this case. Uh, so anytime you need to uh, figure out a reason you want to be a plaintiff's lawyer, this is a case that's just perfect for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just seems like, you know, we, we've talked so many times about how uh, 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 a great plaintiff can make a mediocre case very good and a, and a bad plaintiff can make it a good case bad. Um, but this just seems like uh, exceptional <clears throat> um, people who just really needed help. And, um, and I, you know, I think we've all in our career had the opportunity to work with, with families like this, but it's just uh, so gratifying when you can really help them and, and help bring some um, um, closure to this just uh, tremendous uh, tragedy. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. 
so yeah so what i forgot to tell our listeners is that um if you mention the great child's podcast when you call into legal technology services or write into them uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job so mention the podcast great trials podcast and uh they will give you 10 percent off of your first job and again that is ltsatlanta.com legal technology services uh, give them a try in addition to the obviously um, emotional aspect of this, um, I read somewhere a- about the case that their medical expenses exceeded like two and a half million fairly early on before they just basically like stopped keeping track. I think it's it's you know of course the emotional aspect is is the harder part, but that I. The idea of that, those bills rolling in while you're going through all of this and through the course of this litigation just shows what kind of fortitude these these people clearly had. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, Owen's bills alone, I think, actually topped those numbers, um, let alone all of the surgeries that uh, Brooke and Cap, uh, Catherine had. So and, and of course, they're ongoing. I mean, he's he's confined to a wheelchair and he always will be uh, barring some true medical miracle. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just as, as an aside, I noticed that that uh, the defense lawyers who tried the case, who uh, I had cases with, are both very good lawyers. Um, they uh, made a point of saying that they that you stopped keeping track of the medical bills uh, at two and a half million, and I wasn't sure why they were saying that, other than the fact that the medical bills were obviously a lot. But was that some point in trial that the that uh, the medical bills were not presented to the jury? You know, I think the medical bills um, were presented, at least through our life care planner, the future medical for sure. Okay. Um, and, and Darren and Anna can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if if that's how we did it, it may have had something to do with, you know, his health insurer's uh, rights with regard to subrogation and what right. we pursued, we collected. I know, for example, when we dealt with the um, lien for the air ambulances, um, they were willing to work with us on a kind of a pro rata scale. You know, how big was Susie's recovery as opposed to how their bill accordingly? Um, Darren, do you recall specifically about the medical bills? Yeah, th- that's exactly right. Um, there, there was always going to be the specter of a lien, uh, and in terms of collectability, we did not want to necessarily anchor the award on the past medicals so much as the more intangible, the wrongful death claim, of course, Owen's future medical uh, or future pain and suffering, so as to make sure that we could allocate as much money to the family as we possibly could. So. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the life of this case before it came to trial, uh, because it sounded like you guys went through a, a number of things. I mean, first of all, uh, uh, Mr. Lee uh, went, through, went through a criminal prosecution and he pled guilty to a number of counts. And I saw that he uh, got a 30-year sentence that 15 of which was going to be served uh, at a maximum security prison. Um, and then uh, they, I, I forgot as part of the facts, I forgot to say that uh, the truck that 
that Jake Lee was driving was actually titled uh, in the name of his father's company, a company called Corrugated Replacements. Uh, and um, and so there, there was some litigation involving uh, um, Corrugated Replacements and uh, Jake Lee's father, Robert Lee, uh, as the actual owners. Uh, and then, and then, so I, I wanted you all to sort of help help us walk through it. But I mean, like Buck mentioned, there was a divorce uh, between the parents that may have been related to the litigation. Uh, there was a bankruptcy filed by by the Lees, uh, and then there was a couple of uh, trips up to the Court of Appeals. Walk us through a little bit about the, I guess, the pre-trial uh, preparation for the case. Sure. The, the case was initially brought against Jake, who was the, the striking driver, his dad under the family purpose doctrine, because it was our understanding from the get-go that the Robert the, or the, the father was sort of the primary driver in the gifting of the truck. And then uh, the company you mentioned, Steve, Corrugated Replacements, which is uh, the largest employer in Fannin County. Uh, and in theory, had, and it was owned 50-50 with Robert Lee and his retired older brother, it, it nominally employed Jake Lee, uh, that is the 16-year-old, although there was nothing about, ultimately discovery revealed that there was really nothing about the job that required him to drive or even probably allowed him to. Um, so we did our creative best to keep corrugated in the case because it obviously had the vast majority of the potential asset pool available. Uh, we raised a joint venture theory, uh, initially a vicarious liability theory that was was not to be uh, even a reverse veil piercing shot uh, that would have required the Supreme Courts to have, uh, the Supreme Court to have overruled some other precedent. And that's one of the trips up to the Court of Appeals that ultimately did not pan out, unfortunately. So corrugated got out of the case. That had interestingly enough followed uh, Mandy Merciers, uh, she was the trial judge initially on the case, and she had sided with us on the motion for summary judgment, was going to let it go to a jury, but did sign a certificate and it went up. Uh, and ultimately, the Court of Appeals disagreed with her. Uh, the other aspects of the case, I think there were ultimately six different litigations involved uh, out of this incident. The criminal one, of course, probably took precedent in terms of where everything else went. Uh, initially, there was some real questions about the blood sample that was drawn from Jake at the hospital, whether or not that was legal under the Fourth Amendment and whether or not that could be introduced, whether or not he would be tried as a juvenile. Um, and ultimately, that even made its way up to a U.S. Supreme Court cert petition uh, before that was denied and then came back down. Uh, once all those sort of criminal technical options, and Anna can probably chide me for using that word, uh, were off the table. Then the, the plea negotiations really started. And um, I will say, and, and to be completely fair, this is something I probably wouldn't have said at the beginning of the case, Jake actually seemed like a pretty good kid. Um, he was 16, bigger kid, played football, and he fell in with a crowd of his football buddies that summer. Uh, and then uh, started developing some of those extraordinarily bad choices and habits that ultimately led to the uh, the accident. Uh, we ultimately deposed him twice. The first time, of course, he invoked his rights under the Fifth Amendment. The second time after he had pleaded guilty, we took his deposition in uh, one of the, the security facilities that you talked about right along the Middle District. Uh, and he basically fessed up as to what really happened at that point. Uh, the other spinoff litigations were that Bob Lee declared bankruptcy. Once it became clear that his 
uh, his assets were going to be in play. There was then a divorce filed that would theoretically have carved off half of those. Um, we had our own strongly held beliefs that that divorce itself was actually a bit of a sham since the two parents uh, lived together still during the pendency of the divorce. Uh, and there was literally never even an answer filed. Uh, and in fact, I haven't, I, I should have in anticipation of this checked, but I don't know that it's developed anything to this day, uh, frankly. Right. Um, uh, and then there was always the prospect of a lien dispute as well because of the magnitude of the medical bills. So those, those all came together uh, over the course of what, seven years, I guess. Uh, and then, uh, and then we settled with Mr. Lee, the father, uh, about 10 days before the trial. So, and so the trial just went forward against the driver, Jake. Right. And, and I assume he's still in, in prison at this point. He is. Yeah. yeah. He'll, uh, he'll be 33 when he gets out. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I, and I read some of the, uh, the information about the plea, uh, you know, which seemed like a very emotional uh, uh, plea, both for uh, Mr. Johnson and for uh, for for Jake Lee, which, um, you know, he made a tremendously bad decision that had catastrophic consequences. But, um, you know, the you know, 16 year olds are not known to make great decisions. Indeed. So it was an incredibly emotional day. I mean, even Judge Mercier, who took the plea, um, I don't think we'd shy away from the fact that she had tears streaming down her face as well. So this case, uh, this case provoked a lot of that, uh, in the right. depositions and, and virtually every time we touched it. So. We, you mentioned a reverse, uh, VOP, uh, uh sorry, veil per piercing, uh, argument. The, um, explain to me what, what the argument was trying to show that the, that this was actually a, a, um, company uh, truck that was being driven and covered under the company policies? The, well, the, the company policy, the, the, the truck was actually titled with corrugated. So there was an insurance policy on right. place for it that ultimately was part of the settlement. Okay. The, the problem is getting to the company's assets without some sort of real liability issue or agency issue. And we know that Jake was not driving the truck in the course and scope of his employment, there really wasn't an argument to that regard. He was, he, in fact, he was returning from the very same fireworks show that the Johnsons had attended uh, after making a detour to get high. Um, so the, the argument then is we knew we had a, a colorable case against the father under an agency theory called the family purpose doctrine. In other words, it was a family gift. He was doing it in lieu of the family, shuttling him about and so on. So the reverse veil piercing just simply means that you are trying to pierce a corporate veil in reverse by finding a liability uh, avenue against an individual who then owns assets in type in an entity that are otherwise sheltered. Okay. Yeah. The traditional veil piercing is the opposite, right? right? Yeah. That the entity is undercapitalized and then you go after the principal or owner. This is the reverse. And Georgia, unfortunately, just simply does not recognize that doctrine. Uh, it just, you've got to find a better way to get there, either joint venture or some sort of other agency or vicarious liability. So, but we, we wanted to put everything in the hat that we could, of course, because we knew that corrugated was the, the deepest pocket involved. And, and frankly, should have had some liability, given that they had uh, they did get some tax benefit from owning the truck and things of that nature. That's that was sort of our crux that we had uh, used at summary judgment to get past the initial motions. 
That's exactly what I was going to say. It makes me absolutely crazy. It makes me crazy that, that, you know, you could, that the company can get benefits from, you know, you can title it that way and then they get benefits for using something as a corporate asset. But then when it comes time to hold somebody liable, when somebody gets really hurt, that it doesn't, it makes me crazy. I'll end rant, but I know we're all on the same page, but that makes me crazy. And even even more maddening, perhaps, is that many of the family vehicles were exactly that way. Uh, in other words, uh, right. uh, the Mrs. Lee, the wife, her cars, all the ki- all the kids' cars, uh, or the, all the the male kids' uh, cars were titled in the company or bought by the company initially, um, and you know dangled about as a company asset when they weren't really. Uh, but it was just a, a one way street when it came to to use of it for tax time. So. Well, and there, and it, it might be important to explain the testimony we got about that. The, the advice that they had been given was um, because their personal vehicles are sometimes used for business purposes, they titled them in the business name. So they were trying to protect their personal assets, ostensibly exposing the company. And then when it came time to take responsibility, they were hiding the assets of the company. Yeah, but the, the the genesis of what Buck is talking about is apparently, I mean, this is up in the in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but occasionally a vendor or a client or something would visit and they would use just their personal vehicles to ferry them back to the airport, to the Atlanta airport. Uh, and then apparently a lawyer, accountant, whatever said like, whoa, you don't need to do that. Otherwise, the nice house on the lake might be forfeit if you're not careful. So then the it shifted completely and the company started buying all of the vehicles. So, and paying for the gas, right? Uh, you know, all, all, all the trips to school were on the gas uh, credit card owned by corrugated. Um, wow. Um, that makes me, anyway. Um, well, so I know we kind of mentioned this and it'll probably be a, a theme that we touch on again when we're talking about the trial, but I'm curious, especially knowing that, as y'all mentioned that corrugated was what the second largest employer in the area and, and people were in the county. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then they're referring to you as, the Atlanta lawyers, um, when you get started in the case, when you get involved and you're doing your initial investigations, that initial discovery, did you encounter some resistance? Yeah, I think there was resistance everywhere we went. Um, <laughs> this was a hard fought case. Uh, the lawyers on the other side are good lawyers. They did a good job. Um, they had uh, impossible facts against them, but they, you know, fought as hard as they could. Um, I would say that the, the, the aspects of sort of the conflict that Darren was talking about early on is more of a cultural or community um, aspect with this large employer. We had witnesses that were intimidated. Uh, we had people that didn't want to come forward and tell us stuff. We had all kinds of, you know, looking over your shoulder kind of behavior up in Blue Ridge, Georgia. Um, But, you know, I I think at the end of the day, the verdict and the jury was pretty clear. Even from the very outset, I mean, the genesis of the criminal trial, the real issue was going to be whether or not Jake was going to be tried as an adult or not. Uh, Because if he wasn't, then I don't 
think slap on the wrist is exactly right, but I don't think that's that's exactly wrong either, uh, where the available range of punishment might be. So, and there actually became, uh, as a result of this and sort of the community divide, a race for the district attorney's office, uh, where the incumbent DA who wanted to charge him as an adult, of course, uh, faced opposition and lost uh, as a result of this. Uh, and this is that's where the ad came from that accused uh, the Johnson family of hiring, um, I think it said wealthy Atlanta lawyers. So at least one of those adjectives might be right. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was that sort of just sort of poisoning of the well from the word go that that we saw uh, across the board. Right. So that was a you, you said that was an ad. Was that a like a political ad? Uh, it was essentially an open letter to the people of Fannin County and Blue Ridge to do the right thing and support their community, uh, including with a robocall, for example, uh, to not try Jake as an adult. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this was during the criminal uh, phase of it. Right. But, but they were pointing to you guys as, as uh, responsible for, the, uh, for charging him as an adult. Just really more of the notion that there are the the John, the Lee family is already going to be punished enough. We got these right. Atlanta lawyers that are going to try to take every dime. Mm-hmm. And I think they said we demanded millions of dollars, which no kidding. Um, right. right. It, it, we would have demanded billions if we thought we could have gotten it. Right. Uh, right. So, uh, but it was part of that sort of divide and conquer just to get the DA to try to ratchet down the charges. Uh, or at least not ratchet down the charges, but try them in a juvenile court rather than the superior court. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So that brings us to uh, picking the jury because I was... uh, 
you know, wondering about uh, what it would be like to pick a jury in a case like this in a small county where I'm sure everybody knew about the uh, knew about the collision, knew about the case. And I think you somewhere I saw that there was even a memorial uh, in the county to to Hannah uh, that most everybody would drive by or knew of. Um, so talk about jury selection and uh, and, you know, some of that uh, what, what you're facing when you, you were first uh, selecting the jury. Anna, do you want to talk about that? Or? Uh, sure, just a little bit. Uh, Darren and Buck had done a great job all for the very many twists and turns that you've already talked about, and I just came in right before trial. I thought the judge did a real good job off the bat knowing that this would be a real emotional case for the community. Um, certainly, I, I would say 90% of the jurors we talked to had known about it, been familiar with it. Um, knew the location, could probably recite the names of the parties before we even started talking. And the judge handled it with a lot of sensitivity. Um, we talked to jurors individually. We were all worried. We had talked about it several times going in, how much of the influence on the panel would be from the Lee family and their prominence in the community and the employment um, that was kind of tied to them and how much of the just tragedy of it and the sympathy for the Johnson family and um, you know how that would play. And I think everybody did a good job. Everybody was sensitive. The defense attorneys did a good job um, tiptoeing around where they needed to go. We tried to. And I think maybe for every one person we lost because they felt strongly about the leaves in the community, knew them, we're family, we're friends. Um, I think probably the defense lost five or six people who were far more sympathetic to the Johnsons and um, wouldn't have been able to sit on the jury fairly. Yeah, the, the judge, Judge Weaver did a great job. Uh, she called in a boatload of extra jurors, knowing that there were going to be people who just simply couldn't uh, couldn't sit. And it actually became a fairly streamlined process, although the voir dire took a day, uh, the Monday of the trial, but it really wasn't contentious. In fact, I don't know that we had a motion for cause that was argued at all. Uh, it really became more of a, and you've seen it in some of these trials where someone says some, some of the magic words that might be problematic. And I would just turn to Danny uh, and just sort of nod. And that would be that. Uh, right. And the judge would release those. And these were individual, literally individual. We would just call them one at a time. Um, no, oh, okay. no risk whatsoever of poisoning the pool or even a subset or anything of that nature. So that's why it took a little bit longer. Um, but really the questions were essentially, all right, tell us what you know about the case. And then do you lean one way or the other? Can you be fair? Just really those sort of two ballparks. And that was it. Uh, and Anna's right. I mean, there were, there were only three jurors that I, or three potential jurors that I remember out of the 60 that didn't know about the case. So, right. And those were, I think, it, it, now that I think back about it, those are people who just simply moved into the county after uh, the events. Okay. Uh, weren't exposed to the, the fairly significant media coverage to the, that the case had on the front end. So, and, and Steve, to, to touch on your point, the, the memorial to Hannah uh, was not, it was, of course, where the accident occurred. And that's one of the main thoroughfares into the city. So uh, that was another one of the questions is, you know, you drive past this every day, you know, for some of these folks. Um, and, and can you get past that? 
and you know the the group we picked was an interesting one in the end uh uh, the four person in particular was a sort of a hard scrabble guy that I love telling the story about. Uh, and we can do that once we talk about the trial, but, uh, retire, he wouldn't be the four person I would choose in almost any other trial, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, older white male, you know, blue collar, uh, and, and we got Florida plaintiffs and you know, against a, a local employer, but, uh, but it obviously turned out well. And, and so there, there was no uh, joint questioning of the entire Venire panel. It was all individual questioning. Um, I think we had some very, I mean, the the like you know uh, statutory questions. Oh right. Other than that, now so. Um, okay, and then so you know, and then we've talked about this a couple of times on uh, in a couple of other cases. But one of the things that the defense did in this case was they admitted liability. And uh, and uh, essentially mi- admitted all the elements of the case except as to as to damages, uh, and so by virtue of that in Georgia, and I think it's similar in most other states, they are able to what we call steal the opening and closing of the of the closing. So meaning that they get to go first and they get to go last. Uh, talk about uh, you know I mean I know you know this this case obviously had really compelling facts with great plans, but just talk about some of the. Um, you know, how you dealt with the fact that, uh, that you weren't going to have the last say in closing and, and, um, and, and that, you know, they essentially, uh, weren't contesting the facts. So in some ways it's a, it's an effort by the defense in order to keep the damages lower than, than what they might be. Sure. Um, the, the sort of watchwords we used to blunt some of the questioning or the potential arguments in the, the facts themselves, the damages are so horrendous. It doesn't take a, an incredible advocate to, to sell the fact that this is probably the worst thing anyone's ever going to deal with. Um, the circumstances of Hannah's death and Owen's condition, um, it, uh, the, that setting that aside, we know that we're going to ask for an awful lot of money. The way that we started that actually comes from a story from the morning of the Monday, the first day of trial. I was downstairs getting breakfast at the hotel, and I asked the woman who was behind the desk at the Hampton Inn, I guess, um, tell you what, have you heard about this case? She said, of course I've heard about this case. And I said, like, look, this is you – know, the judge even told us in the pretrial conference this is a very conservative venue – um, I'm, I'm going to ask for $200 million or something like that in the closing. Does that strike you as crazy? She's like, you should ask for more. Um, so at that point that the number, the 200 was the number we used in voir dire. Uh, and so that sort of staked out our claim in the actual closing. And then after that, it was just basically deflecting what the, the rabbits were going to be. Uh, we always echoed through that entire time. This is not about sympathy. We don't want it. Right. This, this family wants what they deserve and the harm that you know, and they were inflicted. It's just about trying to make it as right as you can be, not because you're sad for them, because you want it to be right for them. Um, and that seemed to work very well, uh, frankly. Uh, when, the, when the jury ultimately dispersed after the verdict had been announced, um, they all, every single one waited in the hall to hug everybody. And the question we got more than anything was, is that enough? Did we do, did we do enough? Um, so that was really sort of the, the overall theme. Um, and then each of the family members had a little bit of a different story in terms of Catherine's injuries were meant that she couldn't dance as well as she used to. Uh, and Owen's injuries obviously meant that he had to drive himself into the courtroom in his, in his wheelchair. Um, you know, and so those are easy enough to, to paint the, the portraits of. Uh, and then the rest was just 
but he's going to say a lot of things. Uh, and they, and, and Danny and Kevin played it straight the entire time. They were really good. Couldn't have been more uh, professional in the trial. Uh, but you know, just listen, because this is important. Uh, not a lot of the sort of punitive stuff yet, um, because that was going to be a second phase of the trial, but it was really just, uh, sort of a straight up and, you know, the usual defense tricks of sympathy, 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 right. I think was not even an issue. So. So Anna, was this your, you came on shortly before this went to trial. Was this one of your first, um, civil trials or had you been doing civil since you're switched to criminal and this, but you just joined this case. You know what I mean? Right. No, this was my first civil case. Um, so what was your perspective? I'm just, I'm interested because obviously this was a, this was a, a, a big case, obviously a very important case. And I'm just, I'm curious as to your, how it compared to your experience with all the cases you tried on the criminal side. Well, I looked for, um, you know, what I knew, <laughs> what I could recognize about it. Because, uh, you know, every couple minutes I'd be leaning over to Darren or Buck. Is this right? Are you sure that's right? Can you do that? Can you say that? <laughs> but, um, the, you know, the accident scene, of course, was something I would recognize and um, and felt good about understanding and presenting. And, um, you know, litigation is litigation. So especially emotional, you know, case in a case like this, um, with such great plaintiffs and such great facts and Buck and Darren had worked it up so well before I even got there. Um, you know, it was, it was just letting the witnesses just getting out of their way, you know, just getting out of the right. way of the family and letting them connect with the jury and just, you know, being a monitor as opposed to getting in the middle of the, of the presentation. What Anna is not sharing with you is that she took the first witness um, and not on purpose. Uh, because <laughs> Our planned first witness, we were informed very, very early that Tuesday morning, I guess, was in the ER uh, and would not be available. And she was frankly one of the stars. Uh, she was going to tell the entire narrative. And so we started scrambling. I tried to get an expert in early and Anna basically went across the street uh, and found this EMT that was also on scene and did a cold direct uh, with this guy who was her uh, <laughs> to buy us an hour, frankly, to, to get the other witnesses lined up. So, so that was the introduction to civil practice. <laughs> that is, that is like an anxiety dream that I like, that's an anxiety <laughs> yeah. nightmare I will probably have tonight. <laughs> Although I, I have to imagine that's probably not out of the realm for a, a criminal, uh, criminal lawyer. They see uh, witnesses get thrown up on the stand, you know, uh, all the time. Exactly. I called my husband at lunch. I'm like, okay, I can do this. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, so, uh, Darren, you mentioned that, um, I mean, I know, I, it sounded like you had uh, uh, David and Susie in the courtroom with you, but and then brought in the children to testify. And I, I know there had been some mention about Owen uh, testifying. And this, this was, um, I think it was seven years later. So he was about uh, 10 years old. Uh, so how, how, uh, talk about how, uh, his testimony was on the stand and his impact with the jury. Uh, this was another one of those, like the jury by the time we, I think Owen was our last witness, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or no, Susie was actually, but Owen was next to last and, uh, they already loved him. Uh, I, I mean, everyone speaks so glowingly of this brave child and rightfully so. 
Uh, so we cleared out, you know, the aisles and he drove himself in on uh, his wheelchair. I think Buck handled the direct. And basically it was just, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Um, yeah. Nothing about the accident at all. Uh, and he's, a, he's actually a very exuberant kid uh, and not a dry eye in the house. I mean, it was extraordinarily compelling that he just, uh, you know, he does what he has to do and he does it well. Yeah. I, I, I have to wonder, I mean, does he really remember the accident uh, being three when it happened? He does not. Yeah. So the medical procedures are his first sort of memory afterwards. So he coded twice at the scene. So I, I don't even know physiologically if it's possible to remember some of it, but he had just turned three as well. So he yeah. was on the very, very early days of that. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access CasePacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I know they had admitted liability, but I was just wondering, was there any attempt to uh, to bring the defendant there to uh, the court and put him on the stand or did he not come at all? He, he did not. Uh, he was, of course, incarcerated and they, I, I don't know why. Well, I mean, I know a lot of reasons why, but I don't know what the just the dispositive one was uh, at that point. I mean, I, I don't know that it was the wrong or right decision. I mean, I could see some value in him coming and just literally confessing the sins and saying, I'm sorry, do what you want. Um, and, but that, that's not the, the tack that they took at all. They just yeah. said to keep him away. So. 
And now you uh, you mentioned experts. So t- tell me a little bit about the expert testimony that you had in the case. And and um, was it this was more in line with the uh, the damages, uh, a life care planner and an economist? Right. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, J.P. Gingras was yeah. the economist who's pro- uh, fairly well known in Georgia um, Georgia courts, and then Lou Ray Arndt, who's now retired, unfortunately, but. Yeah. Uh, she was up at her mountain house actually, and, and got the phone call like, "Oh, by the way, you're testifying today." You know, uh, <laughs> so put put clothes on and <laughs> on. and we had not gone over a speck of her testimony, but I we I think all Buck and I had worked with her several times before, and I'm sure you guys have as well. Yeah. Uh, she's a professional. She knows she knows her stuff. Uh, not the not the professional witness part, but she just knows what she's talking about and could do it cold. And yeah. they both did great. In fact, I think. Really, they were the only two witnesses that got any cross-examination questions. Uh, and okay. it was just, you know, sort of softball type stuff uh, that, that just didn't go anywhere. So, The discount rate, JP's discount <laughs> right, rate. Yeah. <laughs> the history of economics. Yes, it's like, uh, in fact, his was, uh, his was videoed, actually. So oh, okay. you know, they did have a little bit more time to, to delve into him. But it was, again, it's like, all I'm doing is doing math. Okay. This is exactly where you want to plant your flag as a, as a defense. Yeah. Yeah. He handles that stuff really well, but I all, I always wonder how, what juries think about that, you know, what they think about the cross on the nitty gritty of the economics. Uh, I think they find it stultifyingly boring. Uh, (laughs) and, and, you know, I do. And some of it direct. So, but he's got a cool accent and uh, (laughs) definitely part of the saving grace. True. True. Um, well, t- I mean, obviously, I know the you know the the damages here or the the injuries were were catastrophic. We talk a little bit about how you went about presenting the damages to the jury to get them where you did for. Uh, uh, and, and I guess I it, it, so, Darren. You mentioned that you you did ask for two hundred million or at least had planted yeah. uh, had mentioned that number before. Um, talk about how you presented the the, the damages a little bit. Sure. Um, I, what ultimately happened, I didn't ultimately ask for that number because it just seemed too round and too artificial. So I went through each of, uh, each of the individuals, of course, and did, and started with, uh, Brooke and then went sort of, oh, I'm sorry, started with Susie and then went up the scale. In other words, what we perceived is sort of the most minor, although that's a terrible term to use. I mean, Susie broke, I don't know how many ribs and, you know, while she was pregnant, so she couldn't take pain meds or anything of that nature. And just everyone had their own board, of course. Uh, and then I just suggested a, a figure uh, at the end. So for um, Susie, I think we started at two and a half or something like that. And and again, each of them had a different story. Susie had to worry about losing her baby. Uh, she couldn't, uh, she was at a funeral like Buck alluded to, you know, sobbing over her six-year-old uh, without the slightest bit of an opioid or anything on board because she just, she just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of the girls have a, a, a very, again, exuberant personality. I think that's a testament to David and Susie's uh, familial skills and parenting skills. Um, Brooke and Catherine both like different things, but each of those activities got, you know, a, you know that sort of play. And I, I did the same with numbers, when we're talking about numbers that are going to be this big on this big of an ask, I, I basically just sort of put it to the jury and say, like, look, I don't want you to take my word for it. I just want you to do what's right. Um, so here's what I would think. Here's what I value these cases at. 
uh, it was is a watch a watch line we use fairly frequently, uh, and then just kept going up the scale. And then for Owen and Hannah, those intangible numbers are so big. Uh, his pain and suffering, you know, he he was three when this happened, uh, and you know, given medicine, he has a full lifespan ahead of him. So he's got seventy five years in a wheelchair, uh, which. Yeah, that's that's just incomprehensible. I can I can't talk about it now. And then Hannah was six uh, and and died at the scene of a, a a truly horrific injury. So in the end, I asked for forty on each of those because I thought if it ever came to it, we could hold that number. Right. Uh, and anything more than that was really just going to be for lawyer ego or. Uh, newspaper sake or something like that. I just thought it was somewhere in the range of, I know I've got a case that I can do the math on and I can hold this in the court of appeals. So, and ultimately the, I think the number we asked for was not much more than what the jury awarded. Uh, there was a little bit taken off of, uh, I guess it was Owen's past pain and suffering of all things. Uh, yeah. But nothing, nothing that made a particular amount of sense. Uh, but then again, we weren't going to quibble once they were giving numbers out like they were. Right, right. In terms of the order of proof, um, other than I know that Anna started with a, a witness she had to find across the street to kind of paint the scene. But then after that, um, how did y'all handle it? You know, did you start, did you just kind of take it in order in terms of the the liability portion and then, and then go into, you know, testimony from the family and testimony from the economist and life care planner. Did you mix things up? How'd you handle that? Well, Grandma, you and I, I've been talking too much. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll chime in on this one. Uh, uh, Anna took that first witness to buy us some time. The witness we didn't get was a great EMT who had been diagnosed and has since passed from cancer um, and she had a medical emergency the week of our trial while she was doing chemo and radiation. She had some dehydration problems and had to be hospitalized. Um, but what we kind of got started at the beginning with the wreck with the deputy uh, who was a behind the striking vehicle and after the impact turned on his blue lights and that preserved his dash cam. So it was actually a recording of, uh, um, of you know, the impact. And we put him up there to authenticate the video, asked him very, very few questions. Um, and he had told me the Sunday before our Monday start that the day I called him about testifying was the second worst day of his life. Um, he had been in therapy for six months to try to deal with this. And Darren made reference to our um, jury foreperson. That gentleman was the father of the deputy's uh, childhood friend. So it's like having yeah. his son's best friend testifying about the wreck and the therapy he went to. Uh, to try to get through it. Um, and, you know, all we did was have him basically introduce the video um, and then work through it. But I would say as an overall 
Um, we kind of mixed it up a good bit. We, um, we had some expert testimony thrown in with some lay testimony, uh, mostly from the family members. Um, the lay testimony, uh, we took JP by video in Darren's office on one day and played it for the jury the next morning. Um, and then, you know, the defense attorneys, other than our experts, were very gracious and respectful towards the family member. And I don't think they really crossed anybody. They may have crossed David a little bit, but I don't remember. And one other thing that I thought was remarkably effective, uh, Buck had the foresight, whatever, seven years before to actually uh, obtain the, the Honda, the van, uh, and it kept it, I guess, in storage ever since. So we had it towed up uh, and the jury right before a lunch break, I think on Wednesday, yeah, it was Wednesday, um, went outside and no one spoke, no one directed or anything of that nature, but just for two yeah. minutes, got to look at it. Um, Judge Weaver and I were standing next to each other uh, during this uh, and out of the hearing of the jury, of course, she said, I have no idea how anyone survived this. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And right. it really was like a bomb went off. Yeah. Uh, and it... Uh, so very effective. I mean, you could see that, you know, no one said a word as they walked away. It was otherwise, a. I mean, the jurors all knew each other, uh, but it was just somber, while mm-hmm. off, have lunch, let it soak in. Uh, and I thought that the timing of that was was very effective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, we mentioned briefly at the beginning, this is a 78 miles per hour, I think, at the point of impact. I mean, is uh, just a tremendous speed for a collision. So, I mean, it, it actually is, um, you know, somewhat of a, of a miracle that, that anybody survived it. Um, so I, I did want to ask because I, so David had some injuries, but I noticed you didn't, uh, include him in the, um, in the verdict form. And I, was that a, a decision just not to present him because in comparison to everybody else, his injuries were relatively minor. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. David David harbored a great deal of guilt uh, about the accident uh, for no justifiable reason, of course. But um, we wanted his sort of narrative to be uh, the lead. And like, for example, at the scene, he called his father and said, I may be the only one that lives. Uh, And so we did not want to even think about putting him through asking a jury for money after going through the psychological toll that he had already gone through. And we didn't really mention it, but I, I wanted to mention that uh, the baby that Susie was pregnant with was born healthy, right? Correct. Healthy. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, well, that's the, the 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 one silver lining, I guess. Um, okay. Well, um, uh, guys, this has been just a, uh, I mean, it's just a heartbreaking case. And I, I wanted to make sure that we covered everything, you know, that you all felt was important. Is there anything that we haven't talked about? Uh, out of this case that uh, that you felt uh, is you feel is important for our uh, listeners to know. Yeah, I'll say one thing, Steve. Um, it, Darren mentioned keeping that car because I knew we'd need it someday. Um, and Darren is uh, accustomed to folks calling him after they get a big verdict and say, "Help us keep it." <laughs> right. uh, I recognized early on that. Uh, and in fact, I think I called Darren on my way back from Chattanooga yep. to gauge his interest. Um, 
that's how early he got involved because a couple of trips to the Court of Appeals is two more than I care to take. Uh, and I knew <laughs> right. it would be a long trip. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I learned that uh, you always keep uh, in your trial bag some extra Kleenex. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Something that I had not previously done. Yeah, I mean, we get, you know, when our Allison, our um, who helps us coordinate the podcast, she sends us like a bunch of our materials for each case that we're going to talk about. And so she sees, you know, I mean, they're they're never really happy stories if they're going to end up on our podcast. But she saw this one and she just was like, man, this is rough. Um, So I I, would have been using plenty of tissues as well. In my closings, I usually have my uh, my iPad and a laptop on a small table outside of the jury's view. One is just in case I have to pull up something. The other is almost like a teleprompter. And then there was smack dab, you know, big thing Kleenex right in front. So. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Not Kleenex big, and big cherry lifesavers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anna yeah, has for, introduced me to the, the cherry lifesaver rather than Altoids uh, thing for trial events. <laughs> and uh, I'm never never going back at this point. So. I was going to say, a trial weed, so many Altoids. I mean, we should own stock in that. Mine company. is the, I like the candy, like the peppermints, like the round ones right. that are like sugar. You know, yes. they're like, yeah, yeah. that's what, that's how I stay alive during trial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, what uh, I did want to ask you, Darren, uh, one thing I saw you write when you were talking about this case is make sure you take responsibility for all of your mistakes. And I just wanted to make sure, did, was there w- something specific you were referencing that happened in the trial that made, um, you, uh, made you write that? Uh, well, um, for those who don't know, what Steve is referring to is when I got home the evening after the verdict, I wrote a post to the GTLA uh, boards and I, I do this for every trial now. This is my first time I've done it. And I wrote one of the things that my takeaway was take responsibility for your mistakes and take all of it. Uh, because part of the litigation had been, uh, particularly for Mr. Lee, that is Jake's father, uh, a, a really just an, a, almost like, how fair is this? I, all I did was go to bed and my son killed somebody and I'm responsible now. So it was a bit of a give and take in the yeah, we're going to admit liability, but we fought it the entire time. Right. When the right thing to do would have been save these people seven years uh, and just let's just get to it. Uh, so that was really part of it. And also just my innate parenting style. Uh, yeah. At that time, I had a 16-year-old. So it was like, in case you ever read this, <laughs> take, take heart. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, uh, well, listen, guys, I wanted to just uh, thank you for coming on the show and telling us about this case. I'll remind everybody that we've been talking about Johnson versus uh, Jake Lee uh, that was tried in uh, Fannin County, Georgia, in uh, September of 2018 on behalf of uh, David, Susie, Brooke, Catherine, Hannah, and Owen. Um, and resulted in a hundred and twenty eight million uh and eight hundred and thirteen thousand five hundred and twenty two dollar uh verdict just a, a tremendous work on a on a very tragic case and uh and I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to uh, Buck Rogers, Darren Somerville, and Anna Cross. Buck is a partner at Rogers and Fight, and you can look him up at rogersfight.com. And Darren and Anna are at somervillefirm.com. You can look them up at somervillefirm.com. So, uh, so guys, thank you so much for your time, and we uh, we really appreciate it. 
Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.